this isn't just for the purpose of having a title. This isn't, and and if it is for that purpose, then you don't need to be here, because I will be the first person to say, I don't care what color you are, I don't care who you are. If your interest is more about yourself than than your community or the people you're trying to represent, then you don't belong here. This is Democracy in Color, the voice of the new American majority. I'm Amy Allison. You can listen to episodes of this podcast on democracyincolor.com, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and iTunes. You can also tweet at Democracy Color with questions, comments, and episode suggestions. We look forward to hearing from you. And also, if you haven't done so already, please subscribe and rate Democracy in Color on iTunes. Do we participate in a politics of cynicism, or do we participate in a politics of hope? But when we are together, we got power, and we can make decisions. I stand before you today as a candidate for the Democratic nomination for the presidency of the United States of America. We want to register to become first-class citizens. I'm so thrilled to be joined in studio by Lucy Flores, who is in the Bay, coming uh, coming out from uh, Las Vegas. Thanks so much for joining us on Democracy Thank you in for Color. Me. I've just so I mean, your reputation precedes you. You are <laughs> hashtag fierce Flores. <laughs> uh, so I just uh, I'm just so happy to uh, first ask you how you are doing. Um, You just came out of a very busy time. We saw each other at the Democratic National Convention. You were a surrogate for Bernie Sanders. How how has it been since the end of the primary uh, for you as well as uh, for, you know, the campaigns? I think any time that you put so much effort and energy and emotion into anything, you know, for me, I came off of my own campaign um, and then immediately thereafter went, you know, 100% for Bernie because at the time when I was running my own campaign, of course, I couldn't campaign for us both. So I did little things where I could for him, um, but then also focused on my own campaign. And And your campaign was for Congress. For Congress, right. And so I I came in second, um, and we were very, very proud of the race that we ran there. Um, And then, you know, finishing off with convention in Philadelphia, with Bernie and you know his other surrogates and his delegates, and it was very emotional. It was very um, draining, and um, and then you know the next day everything's done and you kind of wake up and you're like, okay, now what? So it's it's one of those moments where you really just kind of stop and reflect and and you know think about everything that happened, but then think about everything that needs to be done moving forward. Yeah. Uh- You've been in politics a long time. for For being a young woman, you've you know you've been in politics for what a decade, almost. Yeah, time? yeah. I, I first started out when I was about twenty seven. I was elected uh, about twenty nine. I think I was a twenty or twenty nine, and I've uh, been nonstop ever since. So it's been very exhausting. Uh, when I do something, I I don't do it at fifty percent. I put every ounce of my being into whatever it is that I'm doing. And um, 
and have done that for, you know, almost 10 years now. And so for me, you know, a lot of it has been losing my race um, and then, of course, not being able to have Bernie be the presidential nominee um, has really been um, a, a lot of just what, like I said earlier, what's next, um, but also time to center and to re-energize um, because we all oftentimes, you know, we're so focused on what we're trying to achieve. And, and for me, it's been it's been a mission. It's been a personal mission because of my own background and because of the difficulties that I experienced growing up and knowing that there's so many young people, knowing that there's families, knowing that there's there's people in our community who are out there suffering every single day and knowing that there's something that we should be doing about it, you know, and feeling very frustrated in the process, but also feeling, um, you know, like you also need to take some time to center for yourself and you need to take some time to re-energize because if you can't function for yourself, then you obviously can't function for others. So it's it's been, um, it's been um, gosh, I don't even have words for it, just a, a time for reflection, I guess. Yeah. Reflection is good. Centering is good. Yes. I uh, my, my best friend is uh, on the... Uh, school board in Oakland. Her name's Rosie Torres, in case anyone wanted to know. And she <laughs> is part of an organization called Hope. And so I got to be the adjunct Hope person on a spa weekend with the girls. And your name came up. Oh. Uh, uh, you know, you're in Nevada. You're doing um, state politics as, as uh, being in the state legislature. Um, but your career means a lot to a lot of people you haven't met um, you being this proud Latina who's like a fierce progressive fighter. Um, but I, you know, I don't know how many people know all those difficulties that you experienced. I mean, your path to where you are now uh, seemed like it was it was a difficult one. I mean, you, you, you've been in Nevada. How long have you been in Nevada? You were, all my life since I was two. You've been in Nevada, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I was born in Glendale. Yeah. So just north of L.A. Uh-huh. And your family, uh, you, you have brothers and sisters, and what your... Yeah, so um, I always tell people, I always ask, how'd you end up in politics? And I always tell people that I call myself an accidental politician because, of course, that was not where my my trajectory would have expected me to to end up at. And um, and there, I have a lot of brothers and sisters. Um, my dad, um, we were all living in East L.A., and um, a family tragedy took us to Las Vegas. Two of my eldest brothers, my dad's firstborn, and another older brother, they were murdered around the same time because of drug and gang violence in East L.A. Oh, and you know, I was, I was, I was, in, I was born shortly thereafter, and. Um, you know, my dad just had a tough time dealing with all of that. So when I was about two years old, he just took every last one of us, those of us who were under 18, to Las Vegas and tried to start over. Um, and we we generally did okay. You know, like any low-income family in this country, you just kind of try to make it. And, um, and we tried to make it as best we could. It wasn't until my mom left my family and I was nine that things really went from bad to worse for me and for my family. But more specifically for me, I was the youngest girl. Um, there were still 11 kids. There was about six or so in the household when my mom left. And, um, you know, my two youngest brothers, one was uh, three and four years old. So there were still, you know, little babies, little toddlers. And so it was very difficult on me because I was the youngest girl and I had to immediately start taking care of my little brothers and taking care of the household and and in, in trying to understand, you know, what was going on and why my mom left and 
So it's just very difficult, and I started to experience a lot of problems, of course, and I was in gifted and talented education, school, um, but no one seemed to notice that all of a sudden I was failing every single placement exam, every single class, et cetera, and, you know, I was growing up in a very low-income environment, so all that was available to me was, you know, gangs and violence and drugs, so that's what I got involved in. And When you um, say you got involved in it, meaning... This is your community. This is your your neighborhood. You know, yeah. You what know, was life like? I mean, well, you know, when you don't have anything at home, my dad was literally working day and night to, you know, keep us clothed and fed, so he wasn't there. And um, when you don't have any kind of support structure, when you don't have people to turn to, um, when you when all you feel like you have are your friends, you know, your your homies, if you will. Um, you know, those people who say that they're going to die for you, that they'll be there for you, it, it very much turns into family. Of course, a dysfunctional, dysfunctional, pervasive family, that's what gangs are. Um, but when you have no sense of self or no sense of worth anywhere else, then you find it somewhere. And I found it in, in gangs. And, and of course, all of the, the dysfunction and the criminality and the everything else that goes along with it is just things that you do. So, you know, I started shoplifting and stealing cars and lots of theft-related crimes and, of course, getting arrested. And once you go into the system, you, the system is at this point designed for you to stay there. Um, we, When we talk about systemic challenges of juvenile justice in our criminal justice system, we we talk about it in, in a systemic way because there it is not tailored for every individual that goes in. You have kids that are going into the system at 9, 10, 11, 12 years old for minor crimes, whether it's curfew or uh, ditching school or other things that are we consider status offenses, but they're treated like they just killed someone. They're treated like they belong there. And, and so when I got into the system, I just went through it like everybody else, you know, with with the the fingerprinting and the strip searching and the the bars and the cinder block walls and the iron or the the stone mattresses you know i mean that's you are institutionalized and how old were you when i was first arrested i was oh gosh i think i was about 12 11 or 12 so when I first... little girl, really. 11, yeah. 12 is young. <laughs> well, and it's interesting because I, you know, I think about it in retrospect, and I didn't get out of the system until I was about 16. That's when I finally finished off my parole. Um, you know, as, as I go through my story, um, you know, I had my parole officer had the opportunity to revoke my parole, and she didn't. And that was really the one moment that was a life-changing moment for me because I had gone through the system and everybody had treated me the same. And and no one treated me like I could be different or like I could accomplish anything. And when someone finally did, that's, you know, that just made all the difference in the world for me. So I finally got out of the system, but of course I dropped out of high school. And, you know, fortunately there was more mentors and people who came into my life and eventually empowered me enough to believe that I, that I could be something. Uh, that ended up being, you know, a college graduate and a lawyer and, and I guess eventually an, an assemblywoman and a politician. And, all these things like that. <laughs> and my, my mind is still on the cinder block walls but, I mean, in terms of how, what, but right, what a journey. So I, you know, I think about that trajectory and I think about 
when I'm out there and I'm working with kids and I see these little 11 and 12 and 13-year-old girls. Um, And so often when we talk about criminal justice, we are focusing on the boys, but we need to talk just as often about the girls as well um, because they get even less attention than the boys. And so I, I, I do, I look at them and I think to myself, my God, you know, they're they're little girls, and that was me too. And yet, again, this the, our juvenile justice system and our criminal justice system isn't designed to right now work on and focus on the rehabilitation part or um, the reintegration part. It's primarily focused right now to focus just on the punitive and just on um, locking people up and, and essentially leaving them there. And so, you know, of course, that's been... That's why I think all of these things affect me so deeply, you yeah, know, and, and again, why, yes, and why I I feel that frustration at a much deeper level because, you know, I those those walls are still with me, yeah. you know, and sometimes yeah. I, you know, I definitely still <laughs> get a little emotional. Yeah. But. I'm um, uh, just really feeling uh, you as the pain of being an 11 or 12-year-old and not having someone see you as a, a, a person uh, and giving you that, that support. Yeah, you know, this is actually, uh, in politics, you spend so much time kind of uh, um, boiling everything down to, uh, you know, 10, 15-second talking points. And, you know, I, I can go all day and all night with various talking points on criminal justice reform and juvenile justice reform and and income inequality and opportunity in this country and, you know, really just rally down those stats very quickly. But, um, you know, we never really get to have conversations about what it really means to people, you know, and what these kids and and what people are really going through in the system. So um, this is actually one of the first times that I've had a conversation this in-depth about, you know, um, my experience going through the juvenile justice system. And, And, you know, the growing up in poverty and, you know, dealing with all of that at home. So I apologize if I, Why? <laughs> if my voice Your sounds. heart. <laughs> uh, I am just in the studio. I'm crying. You're crying. <laughs> but it's not a, I don't feel, um, I feel proud of you. <laughs> I feel inspired by you. And I'm, um, what a miracle that you made it through that. And this is what you're doing with that. Uh, experience is the same person who went through that as a young as a girl is the same person in the assembly um, is the same person as a national spokesperson for a really incredible candidate Bernie Sanders campaign was much more than Bernie Sanders and so I just feel incredible I feel your heart Um, I appreciate you thank you also you mentioned to me before we started this uh, this interview that you had run, the, went for a run this morning. And I I also I was a person that loved to run. I tore my meniscus. And it was interesting because I asked you if you play music. And you said no. Because that's that's a lot of time with yourself. Yes, it is a lot of time. <laughs> How, what, is, what happens when you're on a long run? Because you're a marathoner. Yes. You're like a, a runner's runner. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you have to find some time to to disconnect and I'm off I'm around people so often um, whether it's talking with communities or, or you know being a spokesperson for 
issues or people or my own my own campaigns um, that I I that sometimes you just have to escape and for me that's running and you know if I'm running six seven ten miles and you're by yourself for an hour or an hour and a half you know it's just it's that time to just let your mind kind of relax you know and sometimes I it's just the oddest thing sometimes when I'm really pushing myself, you know, runners have a mantra and, you know, when you're getting tired and... What's your mantra? Oh, gosh, like, some it changes all the time. Sometimes I tell myself over and over again, it's your mind, not your body. It's your mind, not your body. Uh-huh. And, and that enables you to kind of push through whatever exhaustion or pain or whatever you're feeling and knowing that if you're strong in your mind and if you're strong in your, in your core and your center, then you can get past anything. And I really love running because it's such a metaphor for life. Yeah. You know, I'm, if you can, if you can, make yourself get to the point where you can run 26 miles and and you want to quit and you just feel like you can't go an inch further but then you keep telling yourself it's your mind not your body and you just keep pushing and then you get there and you're like yes I did this Mm. and if I'd given up I I wouldn't be here you know and that's just such a metaphor for my life I think for anybody's life you know and so and then sometimes I just end up repeating, you know, song lyrics in my head, <laughs> you know, sing to myself the whole time. So it's it's really it's just a really nice process of, you know, and and people find different ways of doing this. Some people do it while they're running. Some people meditate. Some people do yoga. Some people weight lift. You know, some people. It, it really just depends. And it, and it really, I always suggest to people that you have to find whatever works for you. But people do need an outlet, and and that's really what my running is for. You know, we don't get a chance to talk to, I mean, Lucy Flores, the politician, but we don't really get a chance to know, you know, to know people in elected office much, you know, me knowing that you're a runner. Yeah, it's a mistake. mistake. I mean, you're a, you're a whole, yeah, a whole person. Um, And knowing that you're a runner helps me to understand how you made it over the last decades through the experience, you know, and what kind of person that you are. Um, you know, do you feel a lot of uh, the 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 weight of expectation from Latinos in this country who are such a growing force uh, in terms of population, certainly in California and Nevada, your home state, but also a sense of expectation? Do you, do you have that uh, as uh, something that is on your mind a lot, maybe on yes, those long runs? Absolutely. And, uh, you know? There's so few. And for me, you know, I, I definitely am a proud Latina, and I've uh, worked a lot on various Latino issues. But for me, it's really about any repressed person, any repressed, whether it's Native Americans or African Americans, Latinos, Asians. I mean, you know, any any group, um, just a class of poverty, um, because you have white, you know, Appalachians and white rules and, and, and white people who are also, um, you know, s- stuck in, in their system of repression because of poverty. So for me, you know, I just feel that, yes, there I, I feel a certain amount of pressure to work harder, to, to be effective, to be successful, to be that voice for Latinos, but also for, for every group that, um, you know, has been historically repressed in this country and oppressed in this country. And um, 
And we be, and the reason why is because we have so few voices in that way. You know, we have, you know, the majority in this country is rich white males for the most part. And then after that is rich white females. And then, you know, the the list continues. And they have plenty of voices. And so when I see that we, you know, our, our top leadership in this country, political leadership in this country, our top business leadership in this country, the top leadership of anything is um, lacking those voices of diversity, those voices from these groups, then then that means that we're not being represented and our our opinions and our perspectives and our needs are not being heard and they're certainly not being met. And so I do feel a lot of pressure to be successful and to you know, try to add to the, that chorus of voices because we do have, you know, an incredible amount of people, especially now, um, so many more voices because specifically Bernie Sanders, you know, he's elevated Nina Turner and and so many other incredible voices, um, people of color to a national level that it's given people an opportunity that, frankly, in the past we had not been given. I mean, what, do you, what do you see as the near-term future for the Latino electorate. I, they it used to be called, at least in California, the sleeping giant. I don't like that term because it means that the electorate wasn't, a, you know, some, somehow a passive or not awake. But how do you assess what are the opportunities, not only just here, this year, but the next couple of election cycles? What's going? What's it going to take uh, for Latinos to be to be represented in all these these halls of power, like you're talking about? You know, I think to, we are still not to the level of our of the Latino communities, um, to the to the level of influence that they could have. It's still not there because of the numbers. We have, in many instances, for example, in Nevada, um, where thirty percent. Um, of the entire population is Latino now. So we're heading into places in California, I think you might have hit majority already. Um, we're going into places where where we should have political representation and we should have, um, you know, as far as the buying power is concerned, we're in the trillions. And so our, our economic weight is not being used in the way that it should. Our political weight is not being used in the way that it should. So much of it, though, is because we are still the consumer. We are still the voter. We're not the politician. We're not the business owner. Um, and where we are, everyone is, you know, very much working in silos. And so it, it the I feel like the, the community in and of itself, you know, we have to work much harder at being cohesive and helping us build this power because ultimately it's not going to be given to us. When Latinos run, they're not supported in the ways that they should be by the establishment. Well, you know from personal experience, having been just in the primary for your congressional race. Right. Absolutely. You know, when I was passed over by a national organization like Emily's List, who exists, the name stands for Early Money is Like Yeast, whose purpose is to help women struggling with fundraising when I'm passed over and and to help pro-choice women who are struggling with fundraising. Those are the two things, being pro-choice and being and helping you raise money. When you're passed over 
for a wealthy white woman who is contributing more than a half million dollars to herself, and that's why she has a leg up on fundraising, because her world is full of wealthy donors, but mine isn't. That is a clear indication of what's wrong with our political system and, frankly, why Latinos have to do better at building power amongst themselves and and building coalitions also with our black and brown sisters and brothers and, and, and frankly, getting to that door and tearing it down because they're not going to open it for us mm. and they're not going to let us in. I was, uh, there was a photo that was going around uh, Facebook of a Black Lives Matter rally in L.A. I don't know if you saw this, but you had uh, black Muslim security uh, they were all men, were tall men, and next to everyone was a brown beret Latina. <laughs> it was quite a photo. It's, it's an yeah. it's an amazing kind of symbol for, at least at the movement level, what might be happening. Um, That's right. Yeah, and you know, ultimately, it, look, it just it is what it is. You know, people, no matter who they are, they're not going to just willingly give up their power. And that's what this is about. This is about making sure that we take back, and and I don't even know if that back is a word because I I don't even know if that's appropriate because we haven't been in a situation where we have been properly represented in our, our political space and in our economic space. So I don't know that we can even say take it back because I don't know that we ever had it. Just take it. Just take it. Um, and it's not for the purpose of power. It's for the purpose of achieving something with that power. And I think that that's what um, needs to be emphasized. This isn't just for the purpose of having a title. This isn't. And, and if it is for that purpose, then you don't need to be here. Because I will be the first person to say, I don't care what color you are. I don't care who you are. If your interest is more about yourself than, than your community or the people you're trying to represent, then you don't belong here. Well, this is, this is the thing that I wanted to ask you about. having b- Both of us having just been at the convention, uh, Democratic Party is almost 50 percent people of color. Um, it's, it's leadership and um, people who are just peel off – take the covers off of politics. Say It's the Democratic Party, which is comprised of committees that raise money. It's comprised of these large organizations, unions, and progressive, other, other kind of advocacy groups. It's comprised of PACs and donors. There's a lot there. Um, they, the, this, this is something that Democracy in Color, we've been talking about for a long time, which is that the power, it's almost like apartheid-level um, in terms of it being run by uh, white people for a party that's comprised large, a, lot, a lot of people of color. And I guess my question is, having the experience, not only with the Bernie Sanders campaign, looking at the Hillary Clinton campaign and the, the infrastructure, how would you assess where the Democratic Party is? Uh, we're looking over over the line at the GOP and with Trump, and they're struggling and they're imploding. But I would look at the Democrats and say, I feel a rift. I don't know if you see it. Absolutely. I I think that they're not doing well, but there's plenty of people who are forcing them and who are exerting influence in order to make them better. And I am a proud Democrat. I, you know, I feel very deeply about what our platform at least used to be in terms of this being a working families party a platform and a party that is about that is inclusive that that is tolerant 
that is about equal opportunity, that is about um, ensuring that every last person who wants to can achieve their version of the American dream. That's what I believe Democrats are about. And, and for a long time, I think that we were very centered in that, even if we still had our fair share of challenges in terms of, you know, again, uh, not having proper representation and not investing fully in communities of color. Uh, but now, you know, we I feel like we've definitely moved f- so far away from that. We have this corporate influence. We have the dominance of media. I mean, uh, well, yes, of media who is is primarily controlled by corporations and and revenue generating, but but money, you know, and this dominance of money in our political system is not just the Democrats' fault, of course. This is a much deeper problem with money in politics and Citizens United and, you know, just everything that's happened with the perversion of our system because of money. That being said, though, we've moved further and further away towards um, a system that that works for the wealthiest and the most influential and not really for a whole lot of anybody else. What should we do to solve that problem? I think that what we have been doing has been really effective in terms of calling people out. You know, when when the Fannie Lou Hamer report came out that um, um, Steve Phillips and and others uh, commissioned and and did so in Washington, D.C., in the center of power, in the center of where our friends are, one of my favorite sayings that I say all the time is that it's really easy to disagree with those who you oppose. It's significantly harder to disagree with your friends. And it's significantly harder to call those people out and tell them that they're doing wrong. And so when that report focused on the fact that only a minuscule amount of the money that was spent by the Democratic Party was being used on consultants of color, on organizations of color, et cetera, money that would go in to build build the infrastructure and to build out the engagement and and, and and building out the base, but truly getting people of color who do make up half of the uh, percentage of this party to get them fully engaged, that the Democrats weren't putting their money where their mouth is. I think was a starting startling revelation for a lot of people, and it needed to be said, and it needed to be said publicly. Speaking of a starting startling revelation, the the emails that were leaked uh, just a was it a couple weeks ago mm-hmm. uh, that was the downfall of uh, the DNC chair Debbie Wasserman Schultz, uh, and clear- also recently the CEO Amy Dacey. Amy Dacey, and yeah. Others. What, what do you make of that whole situation? What did the emails reveal for you? Who's was an elected official involved in, in the party. Well, it revealed what we knew was going on. We It revealed that this isn't a fair process, that um, that if a party or a party leader has a favorite, then they're going to put the thumb on the scale for that person. And to go as far as saying that the election was rigged, I won't do that because that's just not, simply not true. But that there was bias, that there was um, favoritism, that there were things that were being done 
to that benefited one candidate over the other, that absolutely was done and it shouldn't have been. But that's something that we've known has been occurring not only in this presidential race, but in our system for a very long time. You're either with the in crowd or you're not. And I tell people all the time, look, I know what it's like to be the in candidate and I know what it's like to not be the in candidate. I know what it's like to curry favor and and to be the person that you know everybody wants to to support and then go to being the person that mm, you're not so wanted anymore. You're mm. not needed anymore. That's got to hurt. We found somebody else. Yeah. Of course it does, but that is a detriment to our democracy. That's not that's not even, that's not about me. That's not about my personal feelings. This is about the community and the people actually getting the opportunity to see the candidates stand and run on their own merits, on what they can build. And that's what is most detrimental to our democracy. With Bernie Sanders, he was able to build, despite all of that work work against him, he was able to build this national momentum. He was able to raise millions of dollars from hundreds of thousands of people in small dollar increments. I mean, the things that he did were just incredible despite all of that. And, you know, for me, it's the same thing, you know, despite, I mean, I might not have lost, I not, might not have won my, my last race, but despite all of the times that people have tried to work against me, I'm still here. I'm still talking. I'm still working. I'm still a part of this bigger movement that is about the people. And and that's why I think that it's so important that those emails did get revealed. And, and frankly, again, why I think that we need to continue to be vocal in this very public um, and as broad way as we possibly can, because ultimately the disservices to our communities and the disservices to the people of this country and no, and no one else. Well, I was listening to you, you know, talk about being sometimes on the inside and sometimes being on the outs. I also know that uh, my... Uh, Ten years ago, I ran for city council uh, in Oakland, and I remember after I lost, because it was a very hard-fought local campaign, right? Um, I remember after I lost, I sat at a Chinese restaurant in the district of Chinatown with um, the woman who just beat me. And uh, she was telling me, because she's uh, uh, politically, we were very different. I mean, again, it's Oakland, so <laughs> we're all Democrats. And what I wasn't even a Democrat. I was in the Green Party. Uh, uh, but uh, politically, we had very, very different um, points of view and uh, goals. And she looked at me. She's maybe maybe 20 years older than me. And she said, there'll be plenty of time for you to do public service. And I thought about it. And I said, well, you know what? Uh, I, you can win and sometimes lose. Or you can lose and sometimes win. And the reason I, I don't even know why I was so philosophical in this, I was really nervous in this meeting. And I was like, why am I meeting with this woman anyway? And, but I think in reflection 10 years later, it's what you're saying is that I stayed very true to who I was. So I lost, but I won. Right. I see other people who are in the in crowd who don't work in the service of people. So they lose. That's right. That's right. And I think that ultimately, if you take it one step further, the people are losing too. And that's really what, you know, you, you certainly gain things. And I think that um, your your voice continues in one way or the other in the service of people. And that helps our community. But at the same time, when people aren't able to um, 
end up with the best candidate, the candidate who who figured it out, um, who fought for their support, who thought of innovative ways to raise money, who thought of innovative ways to reach out to people. When that is defeated because um, the establishment or um, that in crowd decides that, that you're not going to be the winner, and so they start to do those types of things, um, ask for favors, political favors, and get endorsements and other things that wouldn't have otherwise happened for the other candidate, that, again, is when the community loses. What's your advice for uh, people who want to run? They want to run for the same similar kind of political goal of representing the people, and they face this. I think you just have to do it, period. If we don't, if we don't challenge, if we don't challenge the status quo, there has to be. I always tell people you have to, you have to at least have a viable campaign. There has to be a path to victory. That's important. Running just to run and to be a martyr, that doesn't serve anybody, and it and it takes your energy and your time and those of your supporters. But if there is a path, even if that path seems challenging or difficult then I think it's your responsibility to run. It's your responsibility to say, to not give up and to not feel defeated and and to not think that just because you're not the chosen one, just because you weren't endorsed by, you know, your your major, in my case, for example, it was Senator Reid, um, just because you're not endorsed by that top figure doesn't mean that you can't win because for as many situations as as the person is defeated by the establishment, there's many other situations in which they're not. Hmm. And in those situations, like, for, for example, um, Pramila J. Paul in Washington, she just won her, um, her primary last night, and she was endorsed by Bernie Sanders. And she managed to build a really amazing coalition of, um, of local and national supporters uh, because she didn't give up. She was not the chosen one at the beginning, but she was able to just stick, stick through it build that coalition, get people to come on board. Some of them came on much later than others. Um, but And and she won. And so it's, it's a really remarkable story because she is uh, she's everything you said, and she's very, very left. She is very left, yes. I mean, we're, we're talking about an area that has a socialist on the, I, mean, I think it's city running council. for mayor, city council That's running right. for mayor. Mm-hmm. Uh, so... Uh, and um, being an East Asian uh, woman, she's a PhD smarty pants right. too. She's got all that <laughs> stuff going on, uh, but she's fierce and she's multiracial in terms That's of her right. coalition building. That's right. She's one to watch in terms Absolutely. of what's going to go on in the Absolutely. dynamic. And what what other races have you excited this year? You know, so I I had the opportunity, of course, to be one of the three that Bernie Sanders endorsed. So it was me and Pramila and Zephyr Teachout out of New York. And, you know, we kind of bonded in that way. So You appeared, you appeared on the stage together? Kind of we thing. didn't appear on the stage together. Uh, we appeared in emails together. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> in fact, I've, I've talked to all three of them and I stay in touch. And after I lost my race, as I was cleaning out the rest of my campaign account, I made sure that I sent them, um, you know, large contributions. And so, you know, I still continue to support people in that way because that's important. And uh, and so, you know, we've we've built a little bit of a friendship. So I'm really excited. Of course, I'm so excited for Vanilla that she won last night, but I'm excited for Zephyr as well, who also won her primary. So those two ladies are going on to the general. And um, and I'm just, you know, really excited for there's local races here. Um, um, 
Jane Kim is wonderful. Um, She's running for and state, I maybe state shouldn't Senate, be saying yeah. this in California, but uh, Nanette Barragon in Southern California. I, you know, I know people have taken positions on those races, but well, why? I mean, uh, she, you like her and her rate. I mean, we're a national show, so there's right. a few people in Southern California, right? Right. Um, yeah, you know, and and so for me, it's really just about supporting women of color, but progressive women of color who are just trailblazers. You know, why women and of color? Because we have so little support, and I think it's important for us to support one another. And I didn't have that. Many of us didn't have that. Many of us still don't have it. We we are not the chosen ones. And and yet, when we're in office, we accomplish so much. We are so good at our jobs. And, and that's exciting. So when I can support another woman of color, I, I'm going to be there. I'm going to do it, and I'm going to continue to do so because we're game changers. And in a way that is selfless and in a way that, that truly brings change and improvement for communities. So why not be excited about that? Yeah. <laughs> oh, no, there's a lot to be excited. I just, one of the things that you did uh, that is just, a, just an illustration of what you just said um, was your courage in talking about your own uh, choice to have an abortion. Um, I don't know if uh, the choice issue will continue to be the issue. Um, with the Hillary Clinton candidacy and the fact that Amer- you know most Americans support uh, choice, but not many people in political life will actually reveal their personal decisions. Why did you make that decision? What what prompted that? I had no intention of talking about it. I've been very open about my life and all the various challenges, including. In that very same session, I for the very well, first time ever. You did a legislative ever, session, did you? Yeah, it was during uh, my 2013 legislative session, my last session um, as a member of the legislature in Nevada, and I, I had also in that same legislative session passed a comprehensive domestic violence prevention law, and for the first time ever talked about me being a survivor of domestic violence as well, which was the very first time I had done that. And that was also incredibly difficult. I mean, were you in front of all your colleagues? What what was it like to be in the room at that moment? It, It was just, it was difficult. And so, but the only reason why I've ever talked about any of my own personal, my own personal experiences is because it was for the purpose of achieving something for others. So I've never talked about things just to talk about them. They were always because I was trying to make a point or trying to push a certain policy or pass a certain law. And it was my way of advocating. It was my way of connecting with people and saying, look, this isn't just, this isn't a data point. This isn't words on a sheet of paper. These are lives, real lives that we're talking about. And I can tell you from personal experience about these lives. And so I, I, one of the things that I had not talked about was my decision to have an abortion. And I and I knew that maybe one day I probably would, but the time just wasn't right. So when I was asked to go speak on behalf of a comprehensive sex ed bill in Nevada, when I walked into the room, in the back of my head, I you know, was having these internal conversations and I was thinking, should I talk about my abortion? And when I sat down at that table, and stared at all of the faces of my colleagues sitting up on the dais listening to this testimony, I still didn't know if I was going to talk about it. Mm. But then I just started talking, and it came out because it felt right. 
And I wanted to give them an example as I was looking at their faces. I was thinking to myself, what can I say that will move them to action on this bill? A bill that had died several times before in a state that was leading the country in teen pregnancies, in teen STD rates, in all of these things that could be fixed if we just empowered and educated our young people. And it just it just didn't it didn't seem it just didn't seem it didn't seem right. And and so the only thing that I that I thought to myself that could possibly move them into action to compel them was to talk about my own choice to have an abortion and the process of doing that. But in that statement, I also felt it was important to say these words, I don't regret it. Mm. And and the reason why is because I, I thought it was important to, as I was talking about that, to emphasize that it was not ashamed. I was not ashamed about that choice, that it's a choice that even though it wasn't a, a hearing on abortion, it was a hearing on sex ed, I needed to make sure that people also understood that we're listening that that abortion is a right in this country. It's legal. It's legal. It's it is a protected right under the constitution and and has been for years now under many challenges by the to the Supreme Court that they have affirmed that right many times over and just recently a couple of weeks ago in women's whole health. And so this isn't a, a this isn't an up for debate. And I just really thought that it was important to address the stigma and the shame that comes shame. with it. Yeah, absolutely. And and the thing is, is that just because I said those words, that is primarily the reason why I was attacked the way that I was afterwards. You know, people sending death threats, you know, telling me that I was going to meet my maker, and and I was going straight to hell, and all of these, these terrible are things. Pro life movement, right? Threatening, the, correct. Threatening to to hurt you, correct? And. And, you know, and saying just horrible, terrible things that I never expected. Um, But again, you know, I I did all of that just because I wanted to do my best in advocating for young people for this bill that we were trying to get passed, but also advocating in a way that was empowering to myself and to others. Mm. And, And that's just always been my approach in terms of you know, disclosing personal personal things about personal decisions that I've made, good things and bad things, because I think it's important also for people to recognize and remember that we all make mistakes. And and the only time that that's a problem is when you don't learn from it. And But we're not perfect people, and we're not a perfect country. <laughs> um, and we are always striving for that perfection. Um, but it, we're never going to quite get there, and that's okay as long as we're constantly trying to improve and constantly trying to strive for it. What courage and uh, what a great perspective for us to create the space to heal and come together. I just want to thank you for uh, you, you know, sharing yourself uh, with us and also uh, for your continued advocacy for the people. I think it's a source of your great power is your ability to overcome any kind of hesitation and uh, tell us the imperfections and the struggle uh, to make things better. And I just uh, 
Anyway, I want to really appreciate you. Thank you so much for joining us, Lucy. Absolutely. It's my pleasure. Lucy Flores here on Democracy in Color. Great. Wow. You're amazing. That was like a therapy session, a recorded therapy session. (laughs) (laughs) Democracy in Color is a project of Power Pack Plus. This episode was recorded in Emeryville, California, in the East Bay, and produced by Lulu Matute and technical support from Anthony Hernandez. A very special thanks to our guest, Lucy Flores, an amazing woman and progressive leader in our country. You can listen to future episodes on democracyandcolor.com, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and iTunes. If you appreciate this podcast as much as we appreciate you, please subscribe and rate us on iTunes. We're also on Facebook, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and on Twitter. Tell a friend, a colleague, or neighbor to tune in for their dose of political intelligence. So until next time, thanks for joining us.